So today, if you will, turn with me to Mark 10, 1 through 12. Mark 10, 1 through 12. So, so one of the things that you get with us here at the North Canton Chapel is that we preach typically through books of the Bible. Every once in a while we move and we'll do a, a specific three, four-week series, five-week series. But typically we move through books. We've been in, in the book of Mark for the last 28 years. And... Uh, and we're going to stay in it. But one of the things about staying in the book of Mark is, um, and the reason we believe that preaching through the Bible is important is when you stay on topics, what you tend to do is not deal with issues that the scriptures speak of. You can kind of navigate around challenging issues. And um, today the text is on divorce and remarriage. Now, when I was in seminary, I remember taking a preaching class and I was like, man, I can't wait till I'm a lead pastor. And I can't wait till I get to talk about divorce and remarriage, Right? Um, actually, that, I never said that. Like, that's not the, nobody wants to get up low. Let me tell you about a culturally hot button issue. And, you know, like, that, that's not, like, the thing. But, but it is in the scripture. And I think as a, for us as a, as, as a people, we, we have to deal with these subjects. And so today, working through the book of Mark, Jesus speaks directly to this. And as we continue to move through the book, the question is, is what, what is the design of marriage? What did Jesus have to say about it? And in light of what Jesus has to say, what do we do? So we're, we're in a culture, though, that has been taught um, infatuation is love. That love is a feeling, is merely a feeling, rather than a willful and decisive decision. Um, see, in our culture, we deal with this kind of infatuation is love, rather than a feeling, and, and a decisive decision. And so our feelings, what happens is our feelings drive us and move us. Now, just so you know, as an ethic of life, if you allow your feelings to drive you, if I allowed my feelings to drive me, I would weigh 850 pounds. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> right? If you let your feelings drive you, there is an end to that that is bad in everything that you do. If we live our lives based upon I do what I feel, right, there is a major problem with that. That's... I know why you're laughing, Peggy. And so, um, and so, so, so feelings isn't what love is. Infatuation, so we're dealing with this kind of infatuation as love rather than love as a willful and decisive decision. So defining from the gaze, love. I believe that there's only one place we can turn to for a definition of love, and that's Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ did on our behalf is he made a willful and a decisive decision that he was going to love us. Now, I can't speak for you. I think the scripture speaks for you, but I'll speak for myself. I am not lovable in the very essence of who I am. I have sinned against God. I have not honored him as I should. I have rebelled against him in more ways than I even know. And God had no reason to love me. And to be honest, he had every right to judge me for my sin and condemn me forever away from him. But he didn't. He sent his one and only son into this world. And Jesus made a willful and a decisive decision. We talked about it last week. That when Jesus was marching up that hill, they thought they were murdering him and he was on a mission. And every step he took, he knew that he was going to a place that would redeem this sorry guy named Ryan Johnston. And he has now made me not a sorry man, but a righteous man because of what he has done. Jesus made a willful and a decisive decision to love me when I was unlovable. And so in this, the baseline of love is a willful and decisive decision. But see, Proverbs 14, 12, it says, There is a way that seems right to man, 
but the end of the path is destruction. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end of the path is destruction. We genuinely believe in our lives, and there's nobody in the room that's never felt like this, that we think, this is truly right, and if I go this way, my life is going to be better. And when we get to the end of that, and when we've disobeyed God, we feel the weight of the disobedience, and we feel the end of the path. And so this is kind of our culture. It's, it's saying that the, the way that seems right to us, go after it. But the scripture says, when we go after our own way, the end of the path is destruction. Now, say this, if, if anyone in this room has kind of been around divorce, I know it personally in my own family. My mom comes from a, a divorced family, and so we dealt with kind of this weirdness my whole life. Like, are those my cousins, or are they not? They're from my grandpa. Like, like they're my half cousin. It was just weird. Like, my, my mom and my mom, uh, my mom and her, her, I can't get this right. Her father and mother were divorced, and then her father had five more kids. And there was this kind of weird tension always growing up in that. Has anybody ever felt the weird tensions of divorce? I mean, anybody? Yeah? I mean, all of us have, and I think in our life, somewhere in our family, we feel these weird, there's nowhere we can run to escape this kind of tension in our life and our world. But see, life is found in Jesus Christ. Peace, shalom, is found fully surrendered to him. Finding our life by losing it, <clears throat> losing it, surrendering our life to Jesus, honoring him. So today, as we get ready to read this text, I know that many in this room have experienced the pain of divorce. I know that <clears throat> some have been caught between warring parents. Some have been caught, as I was, in the oddities of the familial structures due to it. Some have, have been the party of offense in the room today in divorce. Some situations in regard to marriage and divorce are so complex that it's very difficult in applying biblical principles to them. At the same time, the church, we must take a place and be the prophetic voice at times in a hostile culture, culture regardless of what culture thinks. And the bottom line is, what does Jesus say? What does the Bible say about marriage? And in light of that, how should we live our lives? So in, the, in, in that, let's read Mark 10, 1 through 12. <clears throat> Mark 10, 1 through 12 says, <clears throat> And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him. And that word test could almost, you could, you could translate it entrap. It wasn't just they were trying to test him, they were trying to trap him. And so they, they, in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And there Jesus is quoting Genesis 1, the original intent and design of divorce, of divorce, of marriage. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery so in this text, what we're going to see is, is three truths. First, we're going to look at one through six. 
Second, we'll look at 7 through 9, and then the end, we'll look at 10 through 12. It's these kind of bookmarks of the transitions of the text. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus clearly says there is a standard of truth. Jesus is clearly going to say, so if you're following with me in your notes, um, on the back of the bulletin, the first thing is there is a standard of truth. So we see the setup. Jesus is teaching. The Pharisees came up to test him in verse 2, to entrap him. And the question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So even out of the gates, what we know about the disciples is this word, is this kind of, there's this kind of question of lawful. It's like doing your taxes. It's like, what loophole does the, the state of Ohio have that I can get a little bit more money back? It's that kind of same kind of principle. What, what's lawful here? What can we get away with? And so they're setting it up. Now, just so you know, kind of the unpacking underneath this culturally what's happening, and we'll get here, there's these two groups. There's two groups of Pharisees. There's the Hamel and the Shammai. And the Hamel Pharisees are kind of this, they, they, they're going to find great liberty in the scriptures, and the Shammai are going to kind of try to keep keep it to the letter of the law, and they're going to really kind of bind, kind of almost bind people to the letter of the law. So you have this one side, great liberty, this other side, kind of this, this highly like hold tight to the line group of people. So in this, now also culturally what's happening is, I don't know if you know the story about John the Baptist, but John the Baptist pretty much died for his stance on marriage. There was this issue that was happening between Herod and he killed his brother, took his wife, and, and John the Baptist said, hey, dude, like, you can't kill people and take wives. Like, I don't know if you know that. And he kind of calls him out on it. And so he's in prison, and what happens, he ends up being beheaded because of his stance on marriage. He said, this is unlawful. It's against the ways of God. And so what the Pharisees are doing in this moment of entrapment, it's really not just a test of ideologies. It's maybe if he answers this question wrong, that he can go the way of John the Baptist and we can be done with this guy once and for all. So it was legitimate entrapment. This wasn't a discussion of ideas. So this was a heated moment where they come to Jesus. Jesus answers with a question, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? So just so we're clear here, what Jesus is going to do through this argument is he is going to validate the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. Because he's going to not point them to his opinion, he's going to point them to the word of truth. So there is a standard of truth. And the Old Testament is as much the Bible as the New Testament. The entire canon of scripture is the authoritative word of God. It is the breath of God. It is infallible. It is without error. And Jesus is going to kind of refer backwards to the authoritative truth. So he says, he answers the question, what did Moses command you? And their response Moses allowed a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So the conflict really is around Deuteronomy 24.14. And the conflict was, and this is what Deuteronomy 24.14 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some inde- because he has found some indecency in her. Now that's going to be the critical part of this, that, of the interpretation. Some indecency And he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from the house. Now, the Shammai and Hillel, this was their issue, is what does some indecency mean? And so the Hillel will say it like this. Some indecency means this. What it means is that if she walks, uh, if she uh, is at a party and says something um, to your parents that you didn't think was right, divorce her, right? 
if she cooks food and it doesn't taste good, divorce her. And that was actually literally one of the things the rabbi wrote, that if she doesn't cook a meal that is appropriate for you, you have the right to divorce your wife. Now, guys, be very careful in nudging your wife right now. Just say, <laughs> very careful. Right? And so there's this, there's this so they're, they're going to be, they're going to they're take this very, very liberally of, uh, and, and, and create many ways for themselves to interpret this. The Shammai are going to interpret some indecency as anything. Now, at this point, adultery, if you, if you commit adultery, you get stoned to death. It, it, the, the, the end of that is, is death, which still in some cultures, that is still true in our world today. And so this is a high offense. And so what the Shammai were going to say is that some indecency meant if, if she walked down the street in a way that was provocative, that would be some indecency. If she looked at a man too intently, that was grounds for. So the Shammai were going to, like, as kind of, kind of as close as it got to adultery or infidelity, and then the Hamel were going to be very liberal. So what Jesus does is, <clears throat> is kind of says and continues. He says, <clears throat> well, and, and the error underneath this is the interpretation for personal convenience. The interpretation for cultural standards, and the Hamel really were the ones that were far off. Jesus is going to deal with the Shammai in a minute. He's going to deal with the Hillel right now. And what, what he's dealing with is this interpretation for personal convenience, this interpretation for cultural standards, interpretation that, that doesn't see God's words as it is, but as they want. And so what they were doing was, find, trying, was taking their truth, imposing it upon God's word to come out with the result they were wanting instead of looking at God's word for truth and finding out how to wrap their life around his truth. And so his intended ways and our hardness of heart, we see, and so he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And so he's referring back to Moses. He's saying, Moses wrote you this commandment. God gave you this commandment, but this is not his intended way. This is not his design. This is not his plan. But you have so rebelled, you have so ruled against that now I'm going to give you this thing that is not my plan, but the certificate of divorce, this divorce thing is something because of your hardness of heart. So I was reading a, a thing. I was watching the news this week and um, there was this debate going on. It was kind of over Christian values. And one of the commentators that was leading the debate, at the end of it, she said, um, this was her quote. She goes, I go to church all the time. I'm just not big on the Bible. Right? Like, that, that's kind of like, that's kind of tough for me, right? Because that's kind of like, I don't, like, that, those things like aren't incongruent to me, right? Like, that's like one and the same. Like, I go to church and, and, like, my values of the Bible. So for us at the North Canton Chapel, the Bible and who we are and what we do, that's just kind of our thing, right? So if you come here and you're like, hey, I don't like people teaching all those Bible stories to my kids. Like, why do you come to church? Like, doesn't even make any sense, right? Like, the Bible is the, uh, the thing in which we're trying to wrap our lives around. And so when Jesus calls us on mission, we, we want to obey that and we want to go that way. When he calls us to be family and love one another, we want to figure out how to do that better. And, and especially in the, in the realm of marriage, we want to we hear his commandments, we want to obey that with our lives, and so there is a standard of truth, and so Jesus is going to set this whole conversation up, and we have to really set this whole conversation up, and simply that we believe, and do you believe this, that there is a standard of truth in which life hinges upon, and that standard of truth is not me, it is not my feelings, but it is the very word of God that he gave to us in the scriptures. 
So the second thing we see is, is, the, is the design of marriage, the design of marriage. And so the design of marriage in verse 7 through 9. So, so what we see happening is, is that, that he has a standard. He's going to quote Genesis 1, 27. And so, so in Genesis 1, 27, what he's going to quote is this. God made them. Now, just kind of bookmark there. Just so you know, God made them. That God made them is you and me. And God made us. Has anybody, I think everyone's done this today. Have, have you taken in any air? Yeah, yeah, you're a thief, right? You're taking God's air, right? It's his. It's not mine. Have you moved your arms? Have you moved your legs? Did you create yourself? No. We are his. Like God made us. We, we were made by a God who loves us, God made us. And so the very foundation of all of this is God made us, and he made us unique, male and female. He made us with, with an embedded equality of, of, of image bearers and a love and care and with uniqueness of responsibilities and roles within this world. He made us male and female. Now, just so we know, like the foundations of marriage, this is going to be kind of the first wedding ceremony that he quotes. In this first wedding ceremony, it's a man and a woman, and this is the original intent of God, of man and woman, not man and man, and not woman and woman. And this is one of those cultural things that you may be treated, or some of you hear me say this and think, I am a fool. But I will tell you this, I stand on God's word, and I always will. Read Romans 1. You will see that in our sin, when it comes to its fullest kind of letting go, is when a society turns to embracing marriage outside the bounds of what God created. Man and woman is the, is the created intent of God and nothing else. So God created them male and female. And then, so we see his standard, God made them male and female, um, equal yet uniquely different. And by the way, if you've hung out with any, like I live in a house of all girls, we are different, just saying. <laughs> We're different. I'm just throwing that out there. So, very different. So, so there's, a guy, there's a standard. Then there's an intimacy of marriage. It says, therefore, man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. And two shall become one flesh. There's, a, there's an intimacy of marriage that God has created. And this intimacy is not just a physical union of intimacy. This is much deeper. I would say that the deepest intimacy that a couple has with one another is emotional intimacy. I'll tell you, in my marriage, the, the most intimate thing that I have with my wife is that she knows me. She knows my quirks. She knows my thoughts. She knows my feelings. And she loves me. She knows the times when I have been broken and when I have cried and when I can go to no one else that she is there for me. My companion in life, Debbie Johnston, is a, such a great gift to me. And the deepest intimacy that we have experienced in our marriage is emotional intimacy. Now, I'm just telling you, if, you, if you're not kind of pushing in that to your marriage, I just encourage you to, to learn to open up and talk more because it is a deep, deep place that you can go with one another and it is wonderful. But not only that kind of intimacy, but a, but a spiritual intimacy. It's an emotional intimacy. It's a spiritual intimacy that, that not only are we connected emotionally, but we're connected spiritually. And that God puts couples together for his purposes and for his missions to move forward for his purposes. 
And so spiritually connection together, praying together, moving forward together, hearing from God together. This is a, another part of intimacy that we have in marriage. And then physical intimacy. The two shall be one, become one flesh. This deeply, this deeply intimate relationship that God gives us with another. And so we see the standard, the intimacy of marriage, and then the permanency of marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has, and just so you, if you underline anything, what God has. See, there was more that happened when Debbie and I got married than just me making a decision and her making a decision. I remember, I remember that that way back when, when Deb and I were standing at that altar together, I remember her coming down the aisle, and I remember that commitment, and I remember making that together. I remember we were at this small group about a few years after we'd been married, and they're going around like, why are you married to your spouse? And everybody's answering the questions, because I love her, because I love him, because he does this, and Debbie raises her hand, and she says, um, because I made a covenant with God. And I was like, Dang. That's like kind of harsh, like, dude, the only reason I'm married to Ryan Johnson because I made a covenant with God because I got nothing else holding this thing together, right? <laughs> and, and some of you are like, I get that, like, I understand. And so, um, so, so but, but she's right, like, th- that's, that's what keeps us together in marriage because at any point in a marriage, any time in a relationship, there's going to be something in that relationship, someone in that relationship that, that, that is grating, that is, that is not at the right place. And if we're just looking at each other to be what is the glue that holds the marriage together, that is not enough glue. But there is a covenant we made before God. And because I made that covenant, I'm going to love her. See, I, I think marriage, I think marriage, and I think the scripture holds to this, that marriage is a mirror to this world of God's covenant-keeping grace. See, Jesus made a covenant with us. And the covenant he made with us is that when we repent of our sins and turn in faith to him with genuine repentance and genuine faith, that he will redeem us and save us and he will grab a hold of us. And when he grabs a hold of us, he grabs onto us. And he grabs onto us and he will not let us go and he hold, will hold us on and we will persevere through. That all my sins are gone. My debt is paid for by Jesus on the cross. He made a covenant with me in salvation that I am his. And in the same way, when we make a commitment to another, a covenant of marriage, what we're saying is that you are joining us together. We are making a covenant not only between man and woman, but between man and God and woman and God. And in that covenant, we mirror to this world our God, who is a covenant-keeping God. Now, I'll be honest with you. I remember that time when I met Debbie Johnston. I remember when she walked through the doors at Wayne State College, and I believe, I think your hair color at that time was blonde, and, and, uh, and so, just kidding. It's a joke, people. Chill out. Like, that happens, right? Right? She walks through, and she's, you know, her blonde hair's blowing. It's like a movie, right? She walks in. She's, like, glowing, and her hair's blowing, and she's shining. She walks in, and I was like, I love her. <laughs> but all you would say is, like, no, you didn't love her. Like, you are infatuated with her, Right? There was this moment where this, I, I'd kind of been gripped by her, and so I decided that day I was going to hold her hand, right? And so I did. We literally played this game where you mix up hands, and you have to undo the knot. Anybody ever played that game? I don't know. And so I'm like, I'm holding that girl's hand because she's really pretty, right? Like, I, that's what I did. I'm just saying. I did. I held her hand, and, and then I've been held, holding her hand ever since. I mean, that's kind of, we started dating about a couple months later. That's cute. That's sweet. I got an awe. And so... 
So we started, but, but I would say this to you, that, that I didn't really love her, and I didn't really know what love was, if I'm honest with you. Looking back now, and most married people that have been married a, a while, yeah, some of you, you guys are like, oh, you guys are still newlyweds. You've only had your fourth kid, right? Like, you know, you're nothing. So, so, but being married a while, looking back, I was infatuated with Debbie, and I liked the idea of loving her, but I wasn't very good at loving her. And as I grew in the Lord, I learned to love her better, selflessly. And really, on that wedding day, when I made a willful and decisive decision of a commitment between me and God and me and her, is a day that I truly, maybe the first time, expressed genuine love to her because it was a love of, of will, and it was a love of decision, and it was an actual commitment. See, I think we live in a culture that doesn't see love as a commitment. And so kind of maybe two words that I would use is we have this kind of epidemic of uncommitted, uncommitted cohabitation. So we kind of kick the tires of marriage and we play house. But I'll tell you how those, those vows goes is I'm going to love you and I'm going to be with you for richer um, in health um, until something better comes along until I see if I really like you. It's not a commitment. It's not a covenant. It's kind of playing around with the car and see if you like it. Just so you know, one, biblically, there's no foundation for that kind of relationship pre-marriage. And then secondly, there's going to be great pain in your life because of disobeying God. And statistically, you're, you're running toward a cliff because statistically, people that live together before they get married, their marriages do not last. So whichever one you want to believe, pick. Second, I would say we, we we're plagued with what I'd call uncommitted monogamy. <clears throat> we have this idea that I'm going to have one person that I'm committed to, but be honest, I'm shopping everywhere I go. I look and I wander and at times... In my uncommitment, I'm going to step into it. This, in this room today, I think without a doubt, there's somebody, probably multiple, that are currently in an affair. And you got this whole thing going over here, like you're not, like all's good, all's cool. I'm in this committed, monogamous relationship. But the reality is, is you're playing a game, and you're deceiving your spouse, and you're deceiving many others. But I'll tell you this too, the grace of God is available for you today. You don't have to live in the pain and the, in, in, in the discomfort and in, in the anguish that when you lay down at night that you feel. But you can be freed from that through repenting of your sins to God and turning to him in faith to live out his ways and then in repentance to your spouse. And I hope your spouse has enough grace to turn toward you and say, this is going to be really hard but we're going to get through this because I committed for worse, and this is definitely for worse. See, we are plagued in a time where we are unwilling to make willful and decisive decisions that I'm going to love another no matter what. See, their marriage defined in Genesis, quoted by Jesus, marriage is a one-man one woman, intimate relationship for life by design. So, but in this, in verses 10 through 12, and we'll finish up, verses 10 through 12, we see the tragedy of sin. 
the tragedy of sin. Matthew, and so kind of here's a little hermeneutic or a, a way to interpret the Bible that's important. One is that we believe that the Bible does not contradict itself and that the truths of Scripture at times can seem like they're contradictory or they don't align. Um, but what we do believe is that the entirety of Scripture is God-breathed and that, that sometimes seeming competing truths are reconcilable, not irreconcilable. And so in this text, what you're going to have is you're going to kind of have this way in which Mark tells the story, and then Matthew is going to tell this same instance in a, in a bit of a different way. What happens is, is they're not competing with one another. They just give the fullness of what actually happened. So if I see something that happens and I explain how it goes and Mike Stone, you see something and see how it happened and we both explain kind of the angle or the things we highlight out of it, it doesn't make the story different. It just shows some different angles and the fullness of it. And so oftentimes in the Gospels, what happens is one Gospel is going to tell a little bit more about a scenario than the other Gospel. And we have this with this, this kind of this text and we see the same kind of re- recording of a conversation in Mark and in Matthew. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus is going to say this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So then in Mark 10.10 through 12, reads this, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband, and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, there's two groups that we find in this text. We have the offender and the offended. Mark is primarily going to deal with the offender. Matthew is going to deal with the offended. And so in the offender, what happens is is simply kind of this principle. The offender in a marriage should not marry another, and I would add this, to compound the harm in their heart and by their actions. The offender, the one who has gone against the ways of God, the one who is rebelling against God, the one who is unwillful to submit against God, who has committed sexual immorality, and I'll give you a few other scenarios that we see in the scriptures in a second. When they go this way, they should not remarry because they're going to compound the harm in their life. They're going to continue the destructive path that they are on. And so the one who has been offended through infidelity is allowed to remarry for God's design of intimacy and permanency if the person, and I would add this, is unrepentant in their infidelity. I think we should work very, very hard, always, 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 always to restore marriage to the intended design of God. But in unrepentance, and be honest, I've walked with many people through this, there's just some things that when someone wants out, there's nothing you can do, right? We just kind of have to live with the complexity of what that is. So we have the offender and the offended, But hear this, divorce is not the intended way of God. So the biblical teaching, kind of maybe to sum this up, now hear this, this is not law. And if we look at this as law, and if we look at it as as loopholes, we'll miss the entire teaching of Jesus. Now hear me in this too, I think this is something the church has really not done well with. I think we've not done well in, in some ways, we've maybe stood on good truth what we've been super harsh and judgmental and not loved people well as they've went through the messiness of all these things in life. So hear me kind of like compounded in this. Don't hear this today. It's challenging to walk through this gracefully. But we see a biblical teaching. So from Matthew 19, we see that when one's mate is guilty of unrepentant infidelity, that divorce is something in a course that can be moved forward on. 
when a maid is deserted or abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, and I would say this even more, is harm or abuse. And if you are being harmed in abuse in your marriage today, it doesn't mean that you have to get a divorce today, but what, what, what I would like, highly encourage you is get out. Get away. You can get help. And that may be someone in the room today, but you don't have to live in that. And there are people that will come around you and they will help you. But 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here, when a maid is deserted or abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, they're free to remarry, to go about life. And then third, personally, I believe this. Married and divorced before coming to know Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you, if you kind of were trapped and not living in the intended ways of God before you were a Christian, just so you know, all that you were is you weren't a Christian. You were not following the edicts and the ways of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to repent of the things and the people that you've heard and to make things right where you have wronged. But in this, that there is freedom in your life now to where you are, become faithful with God. Just like all of us, when we come to know Jesus, we have to deal with where we are now and move forward faithfully in being born again, being made new in him. So, so the biblical teaching um, are those things. But in this, grace, see, these are not the unforgivable sins. Don't hear that today. These are not the unforgivable sins. And this is probably where we've gone wrong in the church. We don't know what to do with it. And so we, we, we treat these as unforgivable sins. These are not the unforgivable sins of the scriptures. God's grace is available, and he can forgive your sins and help you move, move forward where you are today. But hiding and not facing them, it's not the same thing. You know, Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, she got up and she walked. He said, go and sin no more. That might be a good word for us today. Wherever you find yourself today, go and sin no more. Go today and live faithfully where you are according to the ways and the teachings of God, the standard of truth. See, our response today, I think, can be in three ways, and we'll be done. If you believe the scriptures are true, then what do we do? We often make an excuse that they're too complicated and hard to interpret, but be honest, they seem pretty straightforward to me. And in the straightforward of the scripture, the straightforward nature of the scripture, I think here are three things that we can do, each of us today. First is resist culture. Our culture says, fix your eyes on many. We set ourselves up this way in dating, just so you know, students, you set yourself up for this in dating. You live your life fixing your eyes on many, and all of a sudden you decide to get married. That's a pretty hard train to stop. And so what I would encourage you to do before marriage is to stop fixing your eyes on many, and fix your eyes on God. Fix your eyes on Christ and seek him above everything else and allow him to bring one into your life that will align with you. Those who are single, fix your eyes on Jesus. And if he so chooses to put one beside you to walk with, he will give that one to you at the appointed time. So fix your eyes on, we we have a culture that says fix your eyes on many, a culture that says fix your eyes on yourself and others for fulfillment. But I would say resist culture and fix your eyes on Jesus alone and the one he gives you in marriage alone for your joy and for his glory. Second, refrain from judgment. There is not one person in this room above sin, above rebellion from God, and being deceived. 
Take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your brothers and your sisters. Embrace, feel, and love well the others around you. Don't be committed to pointing out failures and don't be committed to pointing out the failures and those around you, but step around and love and care well. And the third would be repent if needed. Repent if needed. If you're in a place in your life right now where you have, you have in some ways cast judgment or belittled, if you've chosen infatuation versus love and have harmed another, if you have committed adultery and never repented, if you're living in a cohabitation moment right now, get married, repent, turn, do what God is desiring for you to do. Stop living in sin. If you're in a place right now in your life where you've allowed the tragedy of sin to tear the peace from your life and bring strife, turn to God today and he can bring us peace. See, our God is a God of reconciliation, of restoration and renewal. And those things come through repentance and faith. So this morning, I believe God is calling us to resist culture, to, to not cast judgment, to, not, to refuse to belittle those around us, and to repent. And I don't know what you need to do. I only know what I need to do. But whatever God is leading you to do this morning, I, I challenge you with this. If you're married in the room today, and you're here with your spouse, Maybe these altars are a place that you could come in a minute. Just pray and rededicate your marriage to God. Say, God, we're going to live according to you the rest of our days. Maybe you're in a place this morning that you're single and you just want to recommit your life to God, saying, God, I'm going to live and I'm going to do this your way, not my way. You may be in a place today where you have sinned against another. And maybe initially what you need to do is repent right where you are and just say, God, forgive me for what I've done. Maybe you need to come down the altars and, and pray and just say, God, forgive me. Maybe you need to talk to me. I'd be willing, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. Or maybe simply you've never given your life to Jesus and today you want to live your life for him and you want to repent of your sins and turn in faith to him. Today, come to the altars and do that. But I hope we don't leave here today kind of brushing aside the truth of God's word but dealing with it in these next five, 10 minutes as we have left to worship, might we respond well to what God has said. So I'm gonna pray, and after I pray, we'll stand and sing, and the band will come back up. But if you will, bow with me. Father, we love you, and Lord, we believe your word is true. Lord, we do not desire to dishonor you with our lives, but to honor you. Jesus, we believe that you died the death that we deserved that you came and you willfully and decisively chose to love us. And Lord, might we replicate and show that love to others of willfully and decisively loving. Lord, we believe that your design of marriage was one woman, one man in intimacy together for life. Lord, help us as a church, as a people to rally around each other well and encourage and help never to belittle, never to hurt, to love and to care. Lord, help us to respond appropriately in whatever you've said today. This I ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand, we'll sing. As we stand and sing, I do encourage marriages to come and kneel and pray. Um, just so you know, if you come down, people aren't gonna go, ooh, 
their marriage is bad. It's not what we're doing today. This is a recommitment of, of, of being committed together. If you need to come to this altar today in any way or right where you are, let's not leave here today without responding well to what God has said.